Mark chapter 9 today, if you can do anything, if you can do anything. He answered him and said, O faithful gener- faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. For every mountain, there's a valley. In the Christian life, the idea of a mountaintop experience is born in many ways out of Mark 9. There are other passages where people went up on mountains and had great experiences with God. But the one that stands out most in our mind was that Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus was transformed before the disciples and they beheld Him in His glory. They were joined on that marvelous time. By Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus about his return to this earth. A second coming in glory. That was the mountain. Then comes the valley. We define a mountaintop experience today as one where we have one of those great experiences of God's presence and power. If you're saved this morning, then you've had at least one mountaintop experience where you experienced the presence and power of God in a very personal way and you went away from that experience changed because you were born again by the power of God. I hope you've had many more. I have. Almost all of them in places just like this, where God's people have gathered together. And either I was preaching or somebody else was. They were singing and it was singing and worship and praise and prayers, but some of those experiences are special. Very special. Sometimes we have those special experiences where there's nobody else around but just us and God. Mountaintop. I wish I could tell you they're common, but they're not common. Like the disciples, when we've had that kind of experience with the presence and power of God, we'll always go away with questions. What was that? What happened? What's it mean? Why me? Why can't I have this all the time? That's the mountaintop experience. But we're not left to wonder what those are about. I want to remind you this morning, God never wastes His mountains. If we have a mountaintop experience with God, there's a reason. We usually don't have to wait very long. And listen to me today. They're almost always going to come to pass, play out in the valley that is to follow. We have a great depiction of this in our passage today as the disciples were up on the mountaintop with Jesus and then they go down into the valley 
And so we'll begin today by talking about the valley situation, the situation that was there in the valley. When he, that's Jesus, came to the disciples, verse 14, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Imagine, here's Jesus, Peter, James, and John coming down from the mountain. And as they approach the disciples, they see this tumultuous scene of people arguing and shouting and disputing, arguing. And immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Of course, Jesus knew. One of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son. You noticed it wasn't the scribes who answered. One of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. The situation then in the valley is going to be spelled out by the people that are involved in the story, the narrative. And first, you'll notice, of course, the desperate people, uh, the parent, the father, and his son. This is a story we've seen play out over and over again in Mark's gospel as Jesus came into a world that was infested with demonic activity. Here's another of many, many stories. A desperate father, a son who was suffering under the torment of a demonic spirit. And this spirit caused him to be both deaf and mute. Against such a powerful spiritual entity, there was nothing the father could do. And that's an awful situation for a daddy to be in. Can't help his son. He wants to. He wants to protect him. He wants to teach him and to guide him and to raise him. But he couldn't do any of those things because the devil was in the way. The devil's intentions is clearly identified in the text, verse 21. So he, Jesus, asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often, often, he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. I can only imagine how many times. Often, this dad had to pull his boy out of the fire, feeding the flames out of his clothes, healing his wounds. Often, having to swim out into the lake water, summer, winter, freezing weather, didn't matter, the streams, to pull him out of the water. And then there were all these other times where the spirit threw him on the ground and caused him to foam at the mouth and gnaw. Many have read this. Go into a seizure, become rigid. Many have read this and they immediately would describe it as epilepsy. This was not epilepsy. This was not, it was a seizure, yes, but it was not a seizure by any physical cause. It wasn't epilepsy. It wasn't a loss of blood sugar. It wasn't a a high spike in fever. If you've ever held a a child in a seizure, you know how terrifying it is. Often, in the fire, in the water, in a seizure, 
The devil's intentions were clearly spelled out. He wanted to destroy this child. The father made a bold and decisive and very astute move. He brought his child to Jesus. We can learn two great things from this. First of all, this morning, this is one more and many reminders of how that the devil rules over domain of darkness. That domain is spelled out in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where he is called the God of this world and that he is actively working to blind the eyes of them that believe not lest the light of the glorious gospel should shine unto them. Uh, the devil's working in the domain of darkness has not gone away. In fact, it is intensifying in our world right now. It is fully operational. And the devil's goal is simple. He wants to destroy your kids or your grandkids, your great-grandkids. We know his efforts in the domain of darkness are intensifying. We know it. All we have to do is look around us in the world. How many of you young parents in the crowd today would put your kid on a bicycle, see him go out, wave at him as he goes out the door? Where are you going? I'm going to see my buddies. All right, see you later. Would you turn him loose on a bicycle to go rounding around the neighborhood all day long without going and sending the police out to find them? How many of you would do that? I grew up in that world. Well, your parents must have been nuts. No, my parents were very good parents. They were like everybody else in our town. We got up, we went and played. We'd play all day long. And they didn't get worried unless we didn't show up for supper. And if we didn't show up for supper, most of the time it wasn't because anything was wrong, but we got a very, very strong reminder. You didn't, show, you didn't miss that supper deadline, but once or twice. Don't you make me come looking for you again, boy. That world's gone forever. I don't think it'll ever come back. We say, oh, there's predators out there. We, we got to watch out for our kids. So you bring them home and shut them in and keep them close around you. So are they safe? There's predators in your home too. I'm not talking about you parents. You're not the threat to them. But they carry it around in that phone, the, the ever-present telephone, the, the games that they watch, the internet, the, the television, the music that they listen to. Their interaction even with others. The work of the darkness and the domain of darkness has not gone away. It's intensifying. It has changed our world. It's changing it more and more. And all around us are the things that are being used to try to defile and destroy kids. You send them out into an educational system and we are very, very proud of our Cabot School District, and rightly so, and all the godly Christian people who work there and who lead there and run that place. But even in our Cabot School District, your kids are not immune from the influence of the darkness, and you know it. You know it. It may not be from the professionals that work there, but some... Maybe just from their peers. 
That's very strong. See, the devil's goal has not changed. He is still out to destroy, and especially to destroy kids. It's his main target, where he works the hardest. So there were desperate people. There's a desperate son and a desperate dad who were under the power, the domain of darkness. But then also we see the disputing people. These are the scribes and the ones who were arguing, starting a big argument. No doubt they were thrilled by the disciples' inability to cast out demons. I, I, I don't know how uh, that played out because Jesus had given them the power over demons. And in Luke chapter 10, they, they came back saying that, uh, you know, the, the demons are subject to us in thy name. But that was then. This is now. Now all of a sudden, I don't know how it played out. They brought him to Jesus. And probably they did the same thing they'd done before. In the name of Jesus, cast... And the devil just laughed at him. Kept right on throwing him around on the ground. Now I wonder, you know, which disciple went first and then which one followed up? Peter, James, and John were gone. Maybe it was Thomas. Maybe it was Andrew. I don't know who it was. But maybe they went through the whole bunch. What had worked before did not work now. And there was no doubt that the scribes were thrilled about this. So there were the disputing people who just kept raising the arguments. And then also, sadly, the defeated people who couldn't do what they had done before. This then is the, is the valley situation. They were there on the mountain with a great time, a, a great spiritual victory. But they come down into the valley. And there, there they find these people, the desperate, the disputing, and the defeated. So if there's a valley situation, thank God I can tell you today, there's also a Jesus solution. So he answered him, verse 19, and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he's thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. In our world full of desperation caused by the darkness, the solution is very simply expressed. And God obviously wants us to see it. Bring them to Jesus. Bring them unto me. In our culture today, there, is certainly, uh, there are certainly battles to be fought. Certainly there are issues that have to be addressed and there must be unfortunately disputing that has to go on. But Jesus walked right out into the middle of it and said that the only real cure for all this is for people to come to Jesus Christ. He knew that. We need to remember that. In every political dispute there is a winner but there is also a loser. And while the winner rejoices, the loser just plans the next battle they don't stop things aren't settled and you've seen that play out again and again and again 
We might say, well, we can push back the darkness this way. Yes, we can, but don't think the darkness is going to go away. But let me tell you something. When somebody comes to Jesus Christ and receives them as their Savior, that person is changed forever by the power of God. They're saved forever. And that salvation is never going to go away. The solution, ultimate solution to it all is to, to bring people to Jesus because there and only there can they be changed forever by the incredible power of the gospel. Into this world of demonic oppression and desperate disputing and defeated people. Then Jesus brings the message of faith. As he says in verse 23. If you can believe all things are possible to him who believes. Now I want you to notice that there are two ifs. In this passage that are put on prominent display. The first if is by the father who said if you can do anything. But Jesus immediately redirects that because you see the father has asked the wrong if. The if is if you can believe. Did you notice how Jesus turned that right back around? If you can do anything. If you can believe. You see that was the real issue. If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. God can do anything. After all, he's God. This same message was brought to Mary so long ago when she was told that what is impossible with men is possible with God. We deal with the God of the impossible. He makes the impossible possible. All things are possible if you can believe. The question is, can you believe? And the response of this desperate dad is a classic response. But it's also powerful to us today. He said, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. What a desperate answer that is. But what a sincere answer it is. As you see the tears welling up in his eyes. Oh Lord, yes, I believe. But God, I need help with my unbelief. What's he saying? Dear Jesus, you tell me that if I can believe, it's possible. But if somehow my son's healing is dependent upon my belief, then we're in a mess because Jesus, I believe, but I've got a lot of unbelief too. We know exactly how that is. I believe. But dear God, help me. With my unbelief. Matthew's account of this same story reminds us of how Jesus said, If you have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, all things are possible. I want to be very clear with you today. Jesus did not say, as it is so often distorted in our world today, He did not say, if you believe it, it'll happen. Mm -mm. That's not what he said. He said all things are possible if you believe. You see, without faith, brothers and sisters in Christ, then you are stuck forever in the realm of the hopeless impossible. And if that's what you want, you want to refuse to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to say with all that I can give you today, you're welcome to it. 
That's what you want. I don't want to believe. I'm not interested in that pay stuff. That's what you want. Welcome to the world of impossible because that's all you'll ever have. You look at everything that's impossible. You look at every hopeless case, every hopeless cause, and you say, well, there's nothing. But I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm not ashamed of it a bit, because I'm a believer then. I don't have to say, well, it's impossible. I don't have to say it's hopeless, because I know that with God, all things are possible. It's possible. That gives me hope. It's no wonder Jesus was rebuking them as he did so often. How long am I going to have to put up with you? Oh, you faithless people. Hmm. When Jesus saw then, verse 25, the people come running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him. And enter him no more. And then the spirit cried out and convulsed him greatly. Don't think that when Jesus takes over that everything is going to be immediately better. Sometimes it gets worse. That dad who had watched many seizures before, no doubt, now saw the worst one probably he had ever seen. He convulsed him greatly. But he came out of him. He became as one dead. So that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up. And he arose. By all appearances, the child was dead. I think of that dad at this point and the terror that he must have felt. But Jesus took the child by the hand and lifted him up. You see, the demonic oppression and possession that this boy had dealt with so long was certainly a problem. It was a huge problem, but there was an even greater problem, and that was death. Now, by all appearances, the devil wanted to kill the boy, and it looks like he's succeeded. Wasn't a sign of life in him. But even then, there was still hope. Because Jesus could take him by the hand and lift him up. So many years ago, when I started seminary, My teachers told me that we'd stand before eternity-bound congregations Sunday after Sunday, week after week, month after month. They told us in that classic expression, always preach as a dying man to dying people. It's a dying man to dying people. And so we, we live with that. We live, I live with the sense of my own mortality. I live with the sense of yours. I may never get to preach to you again. I might die. 
I mean, you may never hear another sermon. Most of the time, I know that might not have been what you expected coming to the Sunday before Christmas. But I had it on my heart. It needs to be preached. Sometimes it comes home. So I stand sometimes and talk to people whose lives are not measured in years, but in hours, a day or two at best. I've noticed over all these years of ministry that most families really don't want to talk to their loved ones about the possibility of their death. They're lying there sick and dying. We want to tell them, oh, it's going to be okay. We don't want to talk. Somebody needs to have that conversation. And usually it's the preacher's job that I'm the one that does it. Not every day, thank God, but pretty regular. Tell you what, if I couldn't stand there and tell that person. You know what, if, unless something happens, unless God intervenes, you're not going to live very much longer. But God might intervene. <laughs> I'm glad I can say that. There's nothing that's impossible with God. With God, all things are possible. God might turn that thing around and this person may live. They may get to go back to their family. Maybe just like this situation where he reaches down to that boy that was good as dead. Everybody thought he was dead. But Jesus picked him up and said, here, take him home. Just like he did with that little girl we saw a few weeks ago. He told the little one, get up and take her home. Give her something to eat. Send her back to her family. Our God can do that. And I'm glad I can look at that person in that moment knowing that their death is imminent in days, hours perhaps. And say, you know, God may intervene and you may be healed. But if not, then you know the Lord Jesus Christ and you get to go home And be with Him in glory. Whether Jesus reaches down and takes us by the hand. And pulls us off that bed. And sends us back to our family. Or whether He reaches down and takes us by the hand. And takes us home to glory. It's the same Jesus. And the same outcome either way. Both sides are a great and glorious miracle. Both sides. Our great and glorious victory. And so Jesus intervened. This boy was at the very least delivered from demons and lifted up then. Restored to life with his family. But there were others in that scene that day that needed something from Jesus. Jesus Other than asking them a question that apparently didn't answer. He never had anything to say to the scribes. We've already talked about that. His his time with them folks was done. The rest of it didn't play out in front of the disputing people. Verse 28. 
When they got into the house, when he came into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. This is not an oversimplification. The reason for powerlessness is prayerlessness. Plain and simple. Fasting is an overlooked spiritual discipline. What does fasting mean? It means you go without eating for a while. Prolonged time of fasting won't kill you. Say, how long can I fast? Most of us could fast for a pretty good while. No offense. We go without food a whole lot longer than we think. But when you do, and you dedicate that to God, not just for dieting, but you dedicate it to God, I'll tell you what you get. You get a heightened spiritual perception and great mental clarity. It tends to help you to subdue the flesh that usually wars against your prayer life more than it does anything else in spiritual discipline with the possible exception of reading the Bible. And you sit down and try to read the Bible and see how quickly your flesh gets in the way. You sit down to pray to God, see how quickly your flesh gets in the way. But in fasting, then, our, our spiritual side is enhanced. The physical side maybe gets weaker. And Jesus, then, by putting these two together, prayer and fasting, simply say that we, we pray, then, in the power of the Spirit of God. Pray in the Spirit. The modern charismatic movement wants us to believe that such prayers will ultimately be in a heavenly language or in an unknown tongue. But Paul prayed, said in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 15, what is it then? I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the understanding also. What we need, you see, is Spirit-driven, Spirit-powered prayer. We're going to deal with this kind of demonic opposition and this kind of demonic oppression, what is needed Spirit-powered, Holy Spirit-driven prayer that may involve fasting. And I'll finish up today with a couple of three observations. First of all, Spirit-powered prayer is vital in the valley. We need it all the time, but in the valley. Spirit-powered prayer is vital. If we're fasting and praying over something, I guarantee you we know it's serious business. It's serious. Spirit-powered prayer is vital in the, in the valley. Secondly, then, wherever we as God's people or God's church are experiencing defeat, it's proof positive that we need more prayer. And perhaps, yes, even fasting and prayer. And thirdly, I think we can see from this passage that prayerlessness in itself is an indication of a faith problem. We don't know how it happened, 
The text doesn't give us a clue. We just know that it happened. The disciples were given power over unclean spirits. They went out and cast them out over and over again. And know this, in the name of Jesus. We don't know exactly how that played out, only that that's what they did. They would give the name of Jesus, command a demon to come out of somebody, and it was gone. Over and over and over again. Can you imagine how confusing it was on this day? When they went through the same formula that they had many times before, and all of a sudden, Nothing happened. Nothing happened. Jesus indicated that perhaps this one was unique because he said this kind comes out with nothing except prayer and fasting. Of course, Jesus didn't have to fast. <laughs> he had the same power over this one that he did all the rest of them, and I guess that's the point we need to get out of this. God help us if we ever as a people or as a church begin to think that somehow we've got the formula down. We know what to do. Yesterday's victory is no guarantee of today's victory. The devil is constantly working and changing. And that makes us a reliant people, not a self-reliant people. Fasting and prayer is needed. Spirit-driven prayer is needed. And what a great week to hear this message. I've told you before, I'll tell you again. People all over our community, people in your own home, are perhaps more receptive to the message of Jesus Christ right now than at any other time. It's easier to talk about Jesus right now than at any other time. And guess what? The devil hates it. Hates it. You start talking about Jesus, you'll almost smell the brimstone in the air. But we have an often unused weapon in our arsenal, spirit-driven prayer. The devil has no anti-prayer missile. He can't shoot him down. He can stop you from praying them. Oh, Jesus said, how long shall I bear with you? You see, as a people of faith, we understand the power of prayer. And we understand that as believers, nothing is impossible. Let's stand together and close.